This is the Neoliberal Round Podcast. I am Ronaldo McKenzie. Today's episode is a continuation of the series with the interview with Donald Ducky Burks and a reading from his book, Ducky, The Risk Taker, by Donald Ducky Burks, as told to Kendall Wilson, narrated by Ronaldo McKenzie. This is part two of the four-part series. In the 1950s to the early 1960s, many talented black players never made it to the NBA or the ABA. Where do you think they end up, Dante? Okay, where do you think they end up? In the 1950s. In the 1950s to the early 1960s, many talented black players, basketball players, never made it to the NBA or the ABA. Where do you think they end up? Ended up. Where do you think? They Okay, I have, an, I have some of, several options that you can choose from. One, they played in independent leagues such as Rockers. B, they played in independent leagues such as Sunny Hill. C, they played in independent leagues such as Baker's League. D, they played in independent leagues such as Futures League in Philly. E, all of the above. And F, I do not know enough about that history to make a decision. And before you choose... Okay, which, which one do you think it is? Right. <laughs> uh, Again, in the 1950s and 60s, many, I know, many talented right, last. I would choose, I don't know, for some reason, Bakers come, well, I don't, I don't know why I'm saying Bakers. Well, know. today we continue the podcast series sharing the sit-down we had with Donald Ducky Burns, the risk taker, who is among the first African-American businessman in Camden, New Jersey and semi-sports professional who was active in the civil rights movement, friend of Dr. MLK Jr. and Reverend Jesse Jackson, and ran the local civil rights movement here in Philly and in Camden, New Jersey. We learned a lot about his life and the part of history that we never considered as it relates to civil rights, professional sports, and those who we never hear about but who have worked tirelessly to help reposition the black and brown peoples and improve relations between races, people we can look to for inspiration, such as Ducky. We continue his story and the reading of his book in part two of the series on Ducky. We will read from chapters two and three and skip chapters four. 
and wrap up this part with chapter five, looking at Ducky's involvement and contribution in and to sports, politics, and the civil rights. We will break up the episode in segments, sharing some moments of the interview we had with Ducky, which also features co-host Dante Nelson and others, who is here with me and you just hear momentarily. I mean, you just heard previously. Hey, guys. <laughs> now, by the way, may I share with you an excerpt of the reading for today, which is worth, which is, which is worth sharing right here? And I quote from the book, as, as told by um, Don, Donald Ducky Birch. He said, The Baker League consistently ran out enough star quality players to win a National Basketball Association championship. You have to understand that at the time, the NBA teams were bringing in a limited number of blacks into the league. If you weren't Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, Elgin Baylor, or Guy Rogers, the nation's highest profile players, you had to hope that a general manager or a head coach would demand to bring in such players as Sam Jones from North Carolina, a Willis Reed from Grambling, or an Earl Monroe from Winston-Salem State Teachers College. But many talented black players never made it to the NBA. Instead, they played in... Listen to the podcast for the answer as we interview the stalwart and cardinal black hall of famer, Ducky, and read from his book, Ducky, the Risk Taker, by Donald Ducky Birch, as told to Kendall Wilson, narrated by Ronaldo McKenzie. Only on the Nearly Round Podcast, Season 5, Episode 11, Part 2 of a four-part series. Support us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash anchor.fm slash the neoliberal slash support and do visit us at www.thenearliberal.com We are the Neoliberal Corporation serving the world today to solve tomorrow's challenges through our communication which is to make popular what was the monopoly. Again, I'm Ronaldo McKenzie and with me is Stay tuned for the ride, guys. It promises to be dynamic and exciting, but also insightful as we learn from this man's life. And the book that pens his life and shares moments for catharsis and inspiration. Chapter 5 The Moment Taking a Stand for Civil Rights I learned early in life that we were living in two Americas, one for whites and one for blacks. Even when we were going to the same schools in the North and participating in sports and games, we lived in two Americas. Once the games were over, the whites would go their way and the blacks theirs. Although I lived in a country that talked about democracy, pledged allegiance to the concept and proudly called for liberty and justice for all, it wasn't that way in the general society. It appeared that whites were in charge of the money, the jobs, the politics, the education, you name it. But I was never allowed to feel like a second-class citizen. My mother would, wouldn't allow it. 
She'd never let us use segregation, racism, or bigotry as an excuse for failure. Besides, I didn't actually like or dislike individual whites for the privileges, for the privileges that they enjoyed. I disliked the system. I discovered that for the privilege, I, I discovered that the more people communicated, worked and played with and competed with and against each other, the more they gained an understanding and respect for one another. I wondered why this didn't happen more often. This is from chapter five of the book, Ducky, the Risk Taker by Donald Ducky Birds, as told to Kendall Wilson. I will continue with the reading of Donald Ducky Burt's book, The Risk Taker, when we come back. But before that, let us listen to some more of the interview that we did with Mr. Burt himself, right after these messages. Welcome back to a compact and exciting episode, John. Okay? Yes. We um, yes, and I had to take a break because I had to do a segment because we interviewed um, Miss Carolyn Reason, who is your mom. Actually, brought to our attention that there is a stately gentleman who was sitting in, who was at the event that we went to at Peace and the Waters, a friend of Reverend Bishop Steve Johnson. And his name was Madame Ducky Birch. Like he wrote, he goes by the name of Ducky. Ducky, and he wrote the book The Risk Taker. And he is a profound gentleman. Let me give you a before we are about to share an interview. We sat down with him for about twenty-two minutes to thirty minutes during this event, and we interviewed. He's eighty-six years old. He was a member of the NAACP. He, he was a foundation member he, or, and an organizer. Um, and he worked. He, he had to organize the NAACP here in Philadelphia. He worked with Martin Luther King Jr. He worked with Reverend Jesse Jackson. He worked with all those people. He knows them very well. We had an opportunity to talk to him, pick his brain. It was very profound, man. Now, listen, if you don't know who um, Donald Ducky Birch is, I'm going to read. He has a book called The Risk Taker. And he showed it, he gave you a copy. Yes. He said, um, during his remarkable life, Donald Ducky Birch has not only been the ultimate humanitarian, but a groundbreaker as well. Ducky has recorded a string of firsts over the years. As follows. In 1952, he was the first black student council president of Hatch Junior High School in Camden, New Jersey. In 1954, he was the first black quarterback at Camden High School football team. In 1958, that's before our time, before we were born. In 1958, yes. <laughs> in 1958, he was the first black re- recreation supervisor. What? Mm-hmm. City of Camden, New Jersey, from Camden, New Jersey. In 1960, he was the first black salesman for Wal- Walmart Taylors in Camden. In 1961, he's the first black buyer of Walmart Taylors Camden. In 1964, 
he was the first entrepreneur in the city of Camden to receive the U.S. Small Business Association SBA loan guarantee. The first. In 1964, he's the first black businessman to open retail shops in Camden's Haddon Avenue business trip. In 1965, the first black sales representative to work with Majestic Distributors, which sold Seagram's brands. In 1966, he's the first black sales representative for Ballantine Bear. In 1967, he's the first businessman to sign lease at Progress Plaza in North Philadelphia. And in 1982, he's the first black business owner in Broadway in Canada. The first of many African-American or black persons to do this here in Philadelphia and in Canada. And we have him on the show. We have him on the show. In fact, he's coming up next on the Neil Verlon podcast. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you wanted to, to add? No, we'll be right back, guys. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but wasn't it interesting? Yes, it was. <laughs> and um, and you helped to facilitate that discussion. It was really good. But we'll be right back after these messages. And coming up, but no, it won't. Be, we won't have any messages. But coming up next is the interview and the sit down at the Peace and the Waters. Look, under, we were at Peace and the Waters and he in, and he was opened. He opened up himself to be interviewed and shared with us. Drop knowledge. He dropped knowledge. Yes. He dropped knowledge. Yes. Here we go. Now we'll pick we'll pick up from where we left off the last time, in terms of the interview with Ducky Burtz that we had. Here is Ducky Burtz talking about uh, how he ran Ma- Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s program and Jesse Jackson's program, and we'll pick up from there and continue. The dogs and the water and the, I was here. I ran his program in Philly, particularly about the airport and bigger in Philly. He didn't have no structure like the NACP did. Dr. King had the hat. He'd go to church and put the money in the hat and send him back on home because he couldn't go to the hotel. Or if he stayed all night on the sister's or brother's house, then I didn't get, his, get some food and we sent him on back home. He didn't have the structure or the government structure that the NACP had. NACP is the father of the movement. Legally, not emotionally, legally. And that's where we fall down the ball. Out of the NACP came SCLC. Yeah. Out of the NACP. Right. Dr. King came out of the NACP. Yeah. Jesse Jackson came out of the NACP. Good Jesse Jackson came out of the NACP. Then Jesse came with SCLC. Then Jesse got push. Yes. I ran push in Philadelphia here. Yeah. Dr. Sullivan gave the movement to King. Yes. Dr. Sullivan. King gave it to Jesse. Yes. And it created the bread basket. Yeah. In Chicago. Jesse had it in Chicago because Motown was in Detroit. Oh. And that's where the expo came from to get money. All the singers and all that go down the extra. No, 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 no. I, I was a part of that. I was a part of that. I was in Philly, going to Chicago, up in Jesse. 
I brought it back to Philly. And Robbie Sabbath did the expo at Progress Plaza, which we own. I had a store on Progress Plaza in 1968, 67. Then it came in 1972 of the movement from that generation to the next generation. See what happened? And that's when Jesse ran for president, 84. Yes. I was a delegate for Jesse. Yes. And then he ran, ran it in 88. And I was a delegate for him in 88. So Obama didn't come on the scene as a young guy until later. But he benefited from the movement. Oh, wow. Obama just didn't win. As Moses came down, he won. It was a structure that he followed through and, and took it another level. Yes. Because he was accepted. Yes. He was accepted by the white man. Right. Jesse was not accepted. King was not accepted. But he played it. Reverend Sutton was smaller than all of them. Malcolm X. Talking to Carmichael, Rob Brown. They all was, didn't want to do what King wanted to do. They wanted to fight. Oh. You couldn't fight because we got BB guns and we got machine guns. How are you going to fight? Oh. Wow. How are you going to fight? Yes. We had to take the abuse. Yes. We had to take the abuse and shame America. Yes. And we turned, people don't know this, we turned. President Johnson around from the South. President Johnson was the best president blacks ever had. That Kennedy, President Johnson. Oh, President Johnson was the best president blacks, that ever, blacks had. ever had. Why do you say that? Because he's created the money for our community. He created jobs and money for our community. Mm. And he put it in the, and he voted with us he changed the South to vote with him. Oh wow! This is this is this is. Listen, guys, this is knowledge. This is great. This, oh, thank you. This is great. And we're gonna sit down with you Anytime. some more, I man. Yes. Chapter two, Ducky. The Athlete and Sportsman A reading from the book Ducky, The Risk Taker by Donald Ducky Burns as told to Kendall Wilson narrated by Ronaldo McKenzie While my mother was the major influence in my life I tell people over and over again if it hadn't been for sports I could have been an entirely different person. More bad than good. More about making than giving. More about abusing and hurting people than helping and healing them. Perhaps I unconscious I unconsciously sensed what my dear mother was trying to get across to me. Find a way to stay out of trouble because it's off limits in this home. Staying out of trouble enabled us the opportunity to build and nurture our character and sports offered the perfect medium to initiate and promote teamwork, leadership, selflessness, appreciation, and understanding of the input of others, opponents, and teammates alike. My athletic career 
probably began when I was five years old. I was already a basketball fan and was doing the usual young kids' experimentations with round balls, which turned into our versions of basketball, baseball, softball, plus a little soccer. We also tried playing with the odd-shaped ball that gave off funny bounces and was harder to catch than throw. That was the football. At Camden's summer elementary school, our skills progressed to the point where we were playing in organized games. The principal at Sumner at that time was a man named Mr. Bruce, Mr. Bruce Gordon, Sr., father of Bruce Gordon, Jr., the trailblazing corporate executive, Bell Telephone, Bell Atlantic, Verizon, who is who in the summer of 2005 became president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. By the time I left Sumner, or Sumner, I was more than ready for the team-oriented sports at Hutch Junior High School, where young Bruce Gordon starred in track and field. At Hatch, I starred in and captained the baseball, basketball, football, and track teams. Basketball was my favorite, and I enjoyed playing guard, running the team. It was what we could call point guard today. The coaches liked my all-around game, quarterbacking the teams, passing the ball to the open man, avoiding turnovers, and shooting when the opportunities presented themselves. I played tough defense too. Many people thought I was an even better baseball player. Maybe I was. I could play first base, second base, shortstop, third base, and catcher. I was a good contact hitter who could drive the ball. In football, I settled in as the quarterback and offense and as a safety on defense. In track and field, I had a sprinter's speed, but also stamina for middle distance events. Mr. Dickinson taught my mother and me at Hatch, coached football, basketball, track and field, and gymnastics. He was also urging me to take advantage of my God-given skills in sports. He told me I could also excel in the classroom when I applied myself. I think he was as proud as any one of me, as any one of me when I improved my grades. The Hatch student body elected me as the first black president during my senior year. It was Mr. Dickinson who coached me with my commencement speech. While at Hatch, I was also playing at, with an independent basketball team called the Gators. Wilbert Ambrose Fountain coached the juniors and Cherry Miller coached the seniors. Now, these men were wonderful mentors to me giving me valuable advice and keeping me out of trouble. Because of my athletic prowess, I was the talk of the town and many high schools, public and Catholic, wanted me to enroll at their schools once I graduated from Hatch. A lot of players at those schools had played with and against me and told their coaches about me. Camden High School was my choice and I was determined to carry on the school's winning legacy in sports. I was blessed with two great head coaches, Anthony Tony Alfano in basketball, a 
and Joe Papiano in football and baseball. To them, I was not only a good athlete, but like a second coach, helping to position players on the basketball court and football and baseball fields. I became the first black quarterback on the football team, which won City and Group 4 South Jersey Championships. I played those at five different positions on a baseball team that held its own in City and South Jersey regional competition. People urged me to concentrate on baseball, calling it my best sport, saying I had professional potential. I gave each sport 100% but I got more attention playing basketball because the team had not only won the hearts of the city, but respect and admiration in the South Jersey region and across the state. In 1954 and 1955, Camden High won the city and group for South Jersey Championships. I was named to the city and group All-Star First Teams during those years and the All-State Second Team in 1955. I had the good fortune of playing with great players on those teams, including, including the likes of Kenny Fowler and Corey Hinson who made the All-State First Team in 1955. I was captain of that 1955 team and the high-scoring Fowler was the co-captain. I remained active in sports long after I left Camden High in 1956. I played on the South Camden YMCA team which won the Camden County League Basketball Championship. Also, I coached with W. Clarence Bum West whose Speed Boys won the 1961 Basketeers Summer League Championship. The Speed Boys had one of the greatest high school players and all-round athletes I've ever seen in the Ron Itchy Smith. Ron Smith went down to Tennessee State University in Nashville, carrying with him all city and all American honors in basketball, as well as credentials in baseball and football. I was always aware of what, I, what was going on in Philadelphia because a lot of star Philadelphia high school, college and playground athletes were coming over to Camden and playing for YMCA and summer league teams. One of the Camden YMCA's championship teams had so many Philadelphians on it, you'd mistake it for a Philadelphia Y. But as sports always seem to do, it was a great opportunity to build relationships among those big names coming across Ben Franklin and Walt, Whit Walt, Walt Whitman Bridges was a guy named Jimmy T. Perham. Jimmy was one of the, of the most deadly outside shooters I have ever seen, making three-point shots long before colleges and professional basketball decided to recognize such long-distance accuracy. The American Basketball Association, ABA, which later merged with the National Basketball Association, NBA, introduced the three-point before the NBA. Jimmy and I had a few things in common. We were both high school stars, heavily rec recruited by the colleges, but for some reason or other, didn't accept their offers. It still didn't kill our passion for the game, and we kept it alive through pickup games, organized programs, and other outlets. We also made sure our sons pursued their basketball dreams. Jimmy's son, Keith, starred at Temple University, and my son, Davey, nurtured his play-making play skills at Glossboro High School before going to Eastern College, now Eastern University, and later to Florida Memorial College. 
Of course, Jimmy and I weren't the only ones with sons playing in the Baker League program with the Baker League mites. Claude Gross's son, Junie, Herb Janey's son, Gary, and Andy and Andy Johnson's youngster, Super Cool, they called him, were among several father-son combinations in the league. Getting back to Jimmy T, we had become buddies ever since my Camden High team scrimmage with his Northeast High team, which had Jimmy and Sonny Hill in the backcourt. He then invited me to bring some of my Camden players over to Philadelphia at 25th and Diamond Streets, the Molian Recreation, the Molian Recreation Center, where I was told that the best players in Philadelphia hung out. I started playing in the Charles Baker League in 1961. After these visits, I had been running a team in the Centerville League at Camden's Branch Hill Project and coaching players like Itchy Smith and Golden Sunny Sunket. We represented ourselves well when we crossed the river. The Baker Leagues consistently ran out enough star quality players to win a National Basketball Association NBA Championship. You have to understand that at the time, the NBA teams were bringing in a limited number of blacks into the league. If you weren't Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, Elgin Baylor, or Guy Rogers, the nation's highest profile players, you had to hope that a general manager or coach would demand to bring in such players, as Sam Jones from North Carolina's college, a Willis Reed from Grambling, or an Earl Monroe from Winston-Salem State Teachers College. I remember when Carl Smith brought me over to Philadelphia to try out for the Spikes Trophy's team, which played preliminary games in front of the Philadelphia Warriors at Old Conventional Hall. I made a team which was loaded with people like Wally Jones, Walt Hazard, Ralph Hayward, and Wayne Hightower, all over Brook High legends. But many talented black players never made it to the NBA. Instead, they played in independent leagues, summer leagues like Rutgers in New York. And of course, the Baker League, Sunny Hill League, and later the Future League here in Philly. Here in the East, the other option for many players was the powerful Eastern League, which could give the NBA teams all they could handle. Even when the NBA doors opened wide for black players, they continued to flock to the Baker League during the summer. I retired as a player in 1964 and became involved with the operations of the Baker League helping at the scorer's table, collecting money at the playoff games, and doing other little but necessary tasks and help keeping things going on as smoothly as possible. That's quite interesting that a lot of black players could not play in the NBA. Only big high-profile players, you have Oscar, you have um, Will Chamberlain, but there were many other very good, talented black players who never get, got opportunities to, to play in the NBA because it was a white-dominated sport and they didn't, you know, that didn't, they didn't allow many black players. So what did, what did Mr. Black players created their own league, the, the Baker League and so on and so forth. This was quite interesting. Now, getting back to Jimmy Lee, they become buddies, continuing with, with, chap, with, 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 chap, with, with chapter two of his story here. We have become buddies ever since my Camden High team scrimmage. I believe I, I I I apologize. I'm supposed to be moving forward. It's, he says that here um, in 1967 and 1968, I visited Vince Miller, 
then coaching the Willard Medics. I learned a few pointers from him, especially the importance of team discipline. When Vince began teaching the youngsters in the Sunny Hill League in 1969, I took over as head coach of the I, I took over as head coach of the Willard Medics. Would you believe I had my best team ever? We finished first and marched through the playoffs to the championship. Our lineup on a regular basis included such greats as Kenny Wilburn, NBA pros Luke Jackson, Billy Moncioni, and Shaler Hamilton. Sorry, Shaler Hallimon from the 76ers, Ollie Johnson from Temple and the 76ers, Johnny Baum from Temple and then the Chicago Bulls, Charlie Scott from Virginia Squires and later Phoenix Suns and Boston Celtics, who did not become a starter until mid-season, Bobby Lewis from South Carolina State and the American Basketball Association, Jim Williams from Temple, Sonny Jackson from South Carolina State and playground legends, Little Bobby Jones, Big Bobby Jones, and Frank Watusi. Nate, David, the Golden Army, Hamilton, and Bob Greken. Wilburn was a slight to behold, was a sight to behold. My all-time Baker League player. He lived in Atlantic City, but came to every game at his own expense. He was only 6'7", but I played him at center because of his leaping ability and passing skills. He would grab a rebound and outrun, and outrun the other team down the court. He actually did that against John Cheney's Kent Tavernier's team, bidding for their sixth straight title. Cheney's team was loaded with people like Shet Walker and Hal Greer, Roland Fatty Taylor, Davey Riddick, Jay Norman, Alonzo Lewis, Taft Jackson, Bob Newman, and the late John Potley, or might I say, John Postley. I was so confident we'd win the title game. I brought two white suits to the contest, leaving one in my car, with seven seconds left in the third overtime. Wilburn put down, pulled down the rebound and went coast to coast, scoring and being fouled in the process. He completed the three-point play, giving us our first championships. I ran onto the court and hugged him, and we all celebrated in the locker room with champagne. The players then grabbed me and threw me in the showers, that great victory ritual they hold for winning coaches. The showers ruined my suit, but I didn't care because I had the other one in my trunk. The duck came prepared. Through the years, we won more regular season and playoff championships. Even though the competitor got tougher, the Gaddy team, which later became Century Chevrolet, always gave our teams a hard time, especially when they had Earl Monroe on a regular basis. The Sixers team and others with their young stars were always competitive. I'm going to jump down as we get to the end of this chapter. He says, here, my philosophy was playing all 12 players at the first half, and everybody who came to play for me knew they would get time on the court, because I did not like tired players, because I liked to run. In the second half, I would select the players who performed the best in the first half and were not in foul trouble. I used a numerical system in the process, 8, 4, 7, 5, and 6, 6 minutes. The best players got 8 minutes and rested 4, for example. 
the last three minutes, I would go for the juggler to win. Bill Bradley, who had spent two two years at Oxford University in England, played a summer in the league after a difficult start with the New York Knicks. At Princeton University, Bill was the college player of the year, but he had always been away from a serious competition and had a lot of catching up to do. He got it together in the Baker League and everybody, it seems, recalls the memorable shot out Bill had with Earl Magic Monroe, who wound up being on one of the Knicks' championship teams in the early 1970s with Bradley. Vince Miller, Ernest Bing, Teddy Blunt, Jay Norman, Carl Smith, writers like the Tribune's Claude Harrison Jr. and the Bulletin's Julius Thompson and Herm Roggle, the Baker, Sonny Hill and Future Leagues continue to attract basketball's greatest talents. We will have those New York-Philadelphia rivalries, matching Philly's homegrown talents against New York's best. Herm Rogel shares some of the Baker League's greatest moments with us in another selection of this book. We stop here. But it's quite interest- interesting as I read this, this chapter 2 about the moment, the athlete and sportsman talking about the risk-taker, Donald Ducky Burns and his involvement in sports. He was, he played in beyond high school and beyond college in the basketball league, but it, it was at a time when, when they didn't allow many black people in the NBA. So, but they but they played in the Baker League, but there was quite a few rivalries between the NBA league NBA league players and some of whom were black and the and the Baker League and some of the other leagues. It seemed as if there was this tough there was this excitement among this Baker League. Whatever happened to the Baker League Baker League when we sit down with him again later on, he's in the hospital now, but when we get a chance to sit down with him, we will, and we will give you an update as to what's going on with him. We'll find out. Well, I mean, whatever, anybody know whatever happened to the Baker League? And, you know, we, we always hear about story with the basketball, with Will Chamberlain and the first black person to play in the NBA. But black basket, black people was playing in the NBA way before the NBA. And there was, there was quite a, 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 a major rivalry and excitement and rivalry that, that was going on in, 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 in the Baker League and the Eastern League and some of these. But there was a the basket. There was a lot of basketball before the ABA and the NBA. A lot of basketball. The ABA and the NBA was more was 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 that was 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 basketball that was created for white people. But the black people had their own basketball, and there was a lot of sports. There was a lot happening there. Okay, because please remember, you, know, you have to think about segregation. Sports was also affected with segregation. Black people weren't allowed to play in white in the in in the NBA and the NBA because it's part of the segregation. But they but but they created their own league and they were and there was a lot of competition there. But as you read this, you know, you find that a lot of I mean, I don't know what happened is that you know there was not much a lot of the major high profile, the best eventually one a lot of the best um play back, uh, black players went into the NBA. You know? And there was uh, and, and these other games lacked the kind of funding. But it's good. But this is quite interesting. We'll we'll continue to 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 explore the book, the risk taker, and when we come back, um, he actually talks some more. In um, the book, continue. We, it it continues. The chapter actually continues. 
to chapter 3 and when we come back we will look at chapter 3 but before we go back before we we go into chapter 3 when we come back we will continue with the interview that we did with Donald Ducky Burtz and then we go to chapter 3 looking at the political world this is quite an interesting book I think we may not have in fact we may not have enough time to go into chapter 3 or to look at the next um, or to to go into chapter 3 or or, or to um, to play the next recording the interview that we did with him previously because I think we have we have run out of time here so what we will do is that we will we will stop we will stop here go to the interview that we did with Mr. Donald Lucky Birds and then when we come back we'll wrap up this is the Naval Boron Podcast Luckily, be still living, but I can tell it. Yes, I was there. Yes. Now, I like the black man, not my black movement, the black black movement. I love yes. it, but they should come back and talk to the elders that have done it so they can have a structure. Mm. You, you fight on top, but you got people negotiating on the bottom. Yes. When you shake the tree. Anybody that pick the apples up and make applesauce. Yes. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? You can shake the tree and everybody there. What do you mean? Yes. You just took a long walk. Yes. Mm. <laughs> That's what you did, took a long walk. But if you fight, one guy there negotiate, other guy fight. You inside, shaking that tree, other guy outside, picking the apples up, make applesauce out of it, and sell it. You understand know what I'm saying? That, that's what we don't get from the young millennium. Because what happened is, that's why suicide rate is so high. Because the blacks that's educated missed the boat. You can't get in that room and somebody help you get there. You didn't get there by yourself. You gotta reach them and, put them, and, and bring them back. And you gotta know how to catch. You get in the meeting, you throw it out the window, it doesn't catch it. You can't get in the door, like some of them niggas get in the door and shut it to get that, forget they was there. They get a hot dog, they forgot a hot dog, and they baked beans and they come up on them. They got a few steaks, white right? man get a few steaks, they forget about you. And then they get knocked off, they ain't gonna know where to go. You don't wanna be that one. Can't be by yourself. Nobody get nowhere by yourself. And God got us all, God got us all in the right place. God got us all, he know all of it. So. Let me tell you, you have made he, he made a profound point just now. He said, why do you know why suicide rate is just do you know why suicide rate is high among some African American educated people? Because you said they missed the boat. They forget about where they're coming from and then when they get knocked off, they have nowhere to go and they commit suicide. That's what been and what that is quite interesting. Oh man, it's me, man. I mean, I've seen a time when I was coming up, yeah. I had a couple of what they call up the Negro. Uppity. I have been to Uppity. Now I know nigga out. <laughs> yeah. I know nigga out. Yeah. So now I'm in the room and negotiating for my people. Yeah. 
the white man biggest is about the time in the moon. I said, I don't want him mommy. Why? I don't want him mommy. He ain't coming here me, but this is mommy. I don't want him in here. See? Because maybe he's going to stop growth. What we trying to do, white man going to turn around and give it to him so he can block it. So by me knowing that I'm down with that, and I got the white man control because he's afraid of me, I don't want him in my Like I don't want him, you put him in your meat. Yeah. Not in our meat. Let me go outside. Thank you, why you treat me like that? Because you're in the brother. That's why I treat you like that. Be a brother. Stand up for us and be a brother. I got to be here for you to stand up. Okay. I got to be here for you to stand up for my people. I don't need you here being on stuff with my people. Yeah. They got everything. What the hell can you do? They got everything. We just have to get something. And you stand up with them. You ain't stand up with us. That's why I don't want you not me. Yeah. Now when you get yourself together, come back to us. We don't we don't kick our brothers on, on, on we don't kick them on the table. But they gotta come back home and understand what we're trying to do. Yeah. You got something to offer, we'll take it. Father said nothing's better than nothing at all. So we'll take it. But until you understand that, I don't want you in my meeting. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You gotta be careful to front of your brother. And ain't wasting the white man. So they get some silver and gold, and you ain't getting it. But they're lonely. The white man that never cross him. He doesn't care about him. He using, but he don't care about it. They respect knowledge and they respect numbers. All white men can count. They can count. We have to learn how to count too. Okay? You got your piece, take it. You got our piece, you take it. You come at the table, you take the pie at the table, take your pie, you take our pie. Yeah. I'm with a white woman, you ain't gonna trick me. I don't need that. I got my piece, I got plenty of black women. I don't need your white woman to trap me into doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they play the game now. That's how they play the game. I've been through it, I know. Take it somewhere else. Thank you so much. Don't bring it to me. Don't take it. This is... We don't have to You know why you say that? I got nothing to my gun. I got nothing. I got nothing. I'll blow your brains out. Don't come in that bush. Take some real. Thank you so much, man. Wise words from Ducky Birds. Thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. We'll definitely have you. Anytime. We will connect with each other. I'm available. Yes, yes, I'm not too big or too old or too young to talk to my brothers and sisters. And especially young guys. I talk to you all girls. I mean, I got nothing to give knowledge that God gave me. It's done good for me to take to the graveyard. Who good is to the graveyard? This is the Neoliberal Podcast, and we'll be right back. Chapter 3, The Political World Continuing the reading from Ducky, the Risk Taker by Donald Ducky Birch as told to Kendall Wilson narrated by yours truly, Ronaldo McKenzie and we are at Chapter 3, The Political World 
I got my first taste of politics when I ran for student body president in my last year of junior high school. Because I was a four-sport athlete with an outgoing, friendly personality and what some called charisma, I was riding a wave of popularity. Also, I had leadership skills that demonstrated both inside and outside of the classroom. Students seemed to like the way I voiced my opinions without fear. In addition, I had created my own version of the Rainbow Coalition, in quotes, like the one the, the Reverend Jesse L. Jackson would later organize. I was fortunate to have a rapport with the various ethnic groups at Hatch Junior High School, along with the school's black students. We could respect each other despite our cultural, racial, and religious differences. We ran a good campaign, I thought. We were really into it, and I'm sure that we all looked back on it as one of the experiences that made us politically active adults. But it wasn't long before I started to use some of my scholastic political experiences on the adult stage, thanks to the mentoring of Dr. Ulysses S. Wiggins. Dr. Wiggins, as a medical doctor, could have just shown up for meetings at the Camden branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and that would have been enough. He could have made a positive impact on NWACP members by merely giving advice or helping with a medical fear or something. But instead, he rolled up his sleeves and thrust himself into the civil rights movement, right along with the rest of us. He coached, encouraged, and inspired me, and also taught me that the movement wasn't just about gaining our full status as American citizens, but also was about keeping it through the political process. At 15, I became the youth coordinator for the Camden NWCP. The Camden, let me repeat that again. At 15, Ducky became the youth coordinator for the Camden NWACP and was the youngest person to ever hold that post. As the youth coordinator, I learned how to motivate my peers and gain respect from my elders. Pressure from Camden's NWACP and the Congress of Racial Equality Corps opened up jobs for blacks, although the first jobs were more token than anything else. I became the first black salesman for Majestic Distributors, which marked various spirits, including Seagram's brands. From there, I became a salesman and promoter in the Camden area of for Baltimore Bear and companies began to capitalize on my popularity as an athlete and community advocate. Through Ballantyne, I went to school to learn more about point of sales marketing, public relations, how to conduct sales meetings, and how to relate to business people in general. This exposure began paying off as I entered the real world of politics, but people must have been watching me. How else can you explain someone like Camden City Councilman Elijah Perry entrusting his campaign to a 21-year-old like me? How do you explain why Camden mayoral candidate Alfred Pierce decided to ride Ducky's popularity train? Because I moved all around town, people saw that I was supporting these candidates. Also, because people knew me and what I stood for, they knew that these candidates would also have to be accountable to the voters who put them in office. 
personally, I wasn't into politics to get into office. I felt that not having a law degree would keep me from getting where I want to be, at the top. But by working with political leaders and operatives as an independent voice, I felt that I could make a significant contribution. My independence is my greatest strength and my most valuable weapon. That's quite powerful. L let me read it again. He said, I felt that I could make a significant contribution by, and then he says, my independence is my greatest strength and my most valuable weapon. And that is very important. My independence. And you know, we talk about how Gen Z is changing the world of work, how people, how people are changing how we think about work now. And this, and one of the things you ask yourself when you go, to, before you get into a career or a job, what you talk, you ask about leisure. But also you want to ask about flexibility and you want to ask about independence. What independence does it afford you to be able to do all that you can do? And he says, it is my greatest weapon. The fact that I can do, the fact that I'm an, an entrepreneur doing my own thing and going to school and being a journalist and podcasting and doing other side gigs on the job and so on. And it provides for you, me tremendous opportunity to realize dreams that I would not have realized if I continued to work at 18-hour-a-day job in New York as an executive on other people's campaign. I'm going off tangent here. But I'm telling you, when you are able to work as an entrepreneur and work on your own, when you have, you have a level of independence and when you have that level of independence, it comes with a lot of stress though. But you have to know, you have to be very strategic and you have to be able to work the crowd. And that's what he is, was good at, the risk taker, Donald Ducky Birds. Very strategic. He says, I was just as comfortable sitting down with elected officials of both major parties, of both major parties, Something, something that came from my early experiences with Dr. Wiggins, a Republican and a councilman, and councilman Perry, who is a Democrat. So he rubbed shoulders with both Democrats and Republicans. He says, my ties to people like councilman Perry and Mayor Pierce opened doors for me that later led to my being appointed supervisor of recreation and later director of recreation for the city of, 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 of Camden. Since my maiden political campaign voyage or voyage with Councilman Perry, I have been active with scores of candidates and incumbents in Camden and throughout New Jersey, ranging from city council offices to the United States Senate. I enjoyed helping to make Randy Primus Camden's first black mayor and later helping my first teacher at Camden High School, Dr. Arnold Webster, to become the mayor. My most recent achievement was helping the dynamic Gwendolyn Faison became Camden's first female mayor. As I was moving through those campaigns, I was learning what politics could do. But I was also learning something about how differently blacks deal with the political system than others do. This is very important. For example, the Jewish people seem to believe that economics comes first with politics and politics second. While blacks believe just the opposite. We as blacks, we need to put economic empowerment at the top of our agenda. Because if you have the money and the resources, you can usually get things done. As we've seen in recent years, the candidate with the most money is usually the one who wins the race. 
I can't stress enough the importance of that fact. I've seen blacks get elected as mayors of small, medium, and large-sized cities. But I noticed that most of these cities were poor and development. Again, most of these cities were poor and struggling to survive. That's why we need to stress economic development. This way, we'll both will have both the economic and political arms working at the same time. As I've said before, I was an independent player in Camden's political circles. As my reputation began to grow, so did the challenge, the challenges to that independence. Two of those challenges came from Mayor Pierce. Pierce helped me acquire a US Small Business Administration loan for my Haddon Avenue business. Duckies are um, dashery. It was a good loan. I was able to borrow 6000 at 6% interest. It wasn't a lot of money, but in the infantry or the infancy of the SBA, it was what the program could provide. After helping me get that loan, Pierce approached me and suggested that I help him by supporting something which I wasn't comfortable. But by supporting something with which I wasn't comfortable. To the mayor, it was something that would impress the party, faithful, and Camden's white community. But it wasn't necessarily helping black people. Now this is, this is important here. I wasted no time telling him where I stood on the subject. Mr. Mayor, I quote, I said, I know that you helped me get the SBA loan, but until you can assure me that you'll pay for that loan, you can't talk to me about this other issue. I helped you get elected. You helped me get this loan. We're even now in helping each other. The only other time that we can, that we clashed, the only other time that we clashed was when H. Rap Brown, the man responsible for the phrase, burn baby burn, came to Camden and Philadelphia to promote the black power movement. Pierce was uneasy with my involvement with Brown and the other black power advocates. Now, this led to my learning just how dirty politics could get. As a way of discrediting me and neutralizing my popularity with the Camden community, Pierce got a photographer from the Camden Courier Post newspaper to take a picture of me on stage with Brown. I found out that Pierce was behind it from a very reliable source. You have to understand that at that time, the mere mention of the phrase black power frightened white America. To me, black power meant pay back for decades of slavery, discrimination and lynching. Also, more conservative blacks feared being associated with the black power movement because they didn't want to alienate whites. By getting my picture in the newspaper with H. Rap Brown, Pierce felt that it could damage my standing in the general community by painting me as a militant. The only way that I could counteract this was by getting equal time in the press. I wrote a letter to the editor and put paid advertisements with my position on the community meeting in the newspapers. Now, Bert's just an observer at Rap Brown meeting. This is the, 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 the letter that he wrote. May I respectfully bring to your attention an unfortunate matter in which I have become involved? 
it is a matter that possibly could amount to a great disservice to me because of in inferences that could be drawn from the publication in the Camden Courier on Thursday, August 31, 1967, of a photo and a story dealing with the meeting at Camden Convention Hall at which Rap Brown was the speaker. The photo showed Brown on the platform in the act of speaking. The camera happened to catch me and another man in the background. The caption proceeded to identify me, but the other man who presumably was there, as I was as an observer and a curious onlooker, remained anonymous. In the company, or in the accompanying story, my name was included in the list of several persons who, the story stated, had been scheduled to speak at the meeting. I categorically deny at this time that I was supposed to speak. No one had discussed with me before, during or after the meeting, that I had be a, that I that that I be a speaker, and if they had and if they had, I would have refused. The entire effect of the photo and the mentioning of my name as a speaker was to leave an impression with the reader that I was in some way and perhaps to a de to a deep degree aligned with Brown and his movement or in serious sympathy with it. This too is contrary to the truth. For many years, through my days at Hatch Junior High, later as captain of football, baseball and basketball at Camden High and still later in public life as a businessman and a civic and community worker, I have built an image of public service of which I am proud and, and which I am determined to maintain. I am dedicated to the ideals of civil rights and the real brotherhood of man. I have and will continue to fight for these things. However, I pursue my goals, my way, and Rap Brown fights for his view in other ways. I attended the Rap Brown meeting as a citizen and a civil rights worker who was curious to see what is happening. I suppose in the course of a year I attend more meetings, games and public events than anyone in Camden. I was interested in seeing what was being offered to my neighbours and fellow citizens. It so happened that during the course of the meeting I was alerted by Jersey Joe Walcott, the Assistant Director of Public Safety, to stand by in the event of any trouble. I along with Mr Walcott took Brown to exit 4 of the Jersey Turnpike to see what he left to see that he left the city and left unharmed i then patrolled the streets with mr walcott until 4 a.m to make certain peace prevailed we questioned loiters or loiterers we sent many citizens who were loitering home i mentioned these things because i want to underline my participation and activities whatever you deem fit to do to correct any false impression that has arisen will be greatly appreciated. I let the community know that I was at this meeting in my capacity as the youth director for the NAACP and as a leader in the civil rights. When the civil rights leaders were asked to join Brown on stage, I did so because of my position. That roundup went to me. People responded to the letter and supported my involvement in the meeting. 
it reinforced their confidence in me as a leader who promotes positive race relations with everyone. The mayor and I even became better friends after that. Even after closing down Ducky's Dashery on Haddon Avenue and moving to Philadelphia, I continued to work with the Camden community and to help those candidates that I felt were committed to improving the quality of life there. But since Philly was my new home, I brought the same kind of political and civic intensity to it when I moved there in the late 1960s, working with the late Cecil B. Moore. And by the way, I lived at one, and this is me talking now, I lived at 25th and Cecil B. Moore. Yes, he lived. So it says, but since Philly was my new home, I brought the same kind of political and civic intensity to it when I moved there in the late 1960s, working with the late Cecil B. Moore, a stalwart in the African, a stalwart in Philadelphia. Moore, Cecil B. Moore, had brought new life to, 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 to the Philadelphia NAACP and challenged the political structure in the city of brotherly love. And I'm going to add sisterly affection so as to be, so as to be inclusive and, and, and politically correct in the 21st century. Now, and, and I added that part, sisterly love. Now, I continue with his book. We witnessed the North Philadelphia riot that began on Columbia Avenue which is now named, ironically, Cecil B. Moore Avenue. I lived right off that avenue some time ago. Moore criticized some black church leaders. Here you go, here we go again. Cecil B. Moore criticized some black church leaders, political leaders, and other black professionals for moving too slowly and being too soft in the fight against racism. He shook up the city and made national headlines with his mass rallies, protests, and demonstrations. The local NAACP membership mushroomed because of his grassroots appeal. But sadly, the national office took away his power by chopping the chapter into four separate branches and spreading them across the city. Among Moore's biggest accomplishments around the city included one involving construction work on Strawberry Mansion High School. Active activists demanded that blacks share in not only the construction work itself but in the monetary rewards gained from subcontracting on the project we haven't heard this much and you go around the city people building up in the city you don't find any of the locals and finally even if the locals demand to work there they're still not they're, they're not benefiting from the con subcontracting proceeds that is what we're talking about that's not what's not happening now this is powerful there were also demonstrations demanding that the school district of Philadelphia include African-American history into its curriculum. That was eventually done in 2005, years after. Under the watch of police commissioner, Frank Rizzo, who later became Philadelphia's mayor, officers literally attacked the demonstrators, most of whom were high school students. One blooded demonstrator, David P. Richardson, David Richardson, would later parlay his activism, his activism into a legendary career as a state representative in Harrisburg before his untimely death. Around this country, we were witnessing a black political revolution and Philadelphia was no exception. Through the basketball leagues in which I had played and coached, I had met many of the people leading that political charge I started campaigning for some of these new candidates. Whether they won or lost, their efforts weren't in vain because they sent a strong message to the city to get in the game. 
we actually had black political convention in Philadelphia that spawned the independent Philadelphia party. We were looking, we weren't looking for so-called moral victories. We weren't trying to make a powerful statement about the black community. Again, let me read that. Let me read that again. It says, he says here that whether they won or lost, I started campaigning for some of these new candidates. And he goes on to say, whether they won or lost, their efforts weren't in vain because they sent a strong message to the city that blacks were coming off the political bench and were determined to get in the game. We actually had a black political convention in Philadelphia that spawned the independent Philadelphia party. We weren't looking for so-called moral victories. We were, we were trying to make a powerful statement about the community's political clout. Even without the in endorsement of the Democratic Party, which had been, which has been in charge in Philadelphia for years, we managed to put people in office. Moore ran for mayor and state senator. Hardy William ran for mayor. But when Charles Browser, brother of my dear friend John Browser, or Bowser, John Bra Bowser, threw his hat into the Philadelphia mayoral ring, first with the Philadelphia Party and later on the city Democratic ticket, people began to believe that a black mayor for Philadelphia wasn't out of the realm of possibility. When he ran against Frank Rizzo in, in the 1975 mayor's race, I served as campaign manager for the for then state senator Lou Hill. We didn't win, but many have said that Hill's race helped lay the groundwork for W. Wilson Good's election as Philadelphia's first black mayor in 1983. W. Wilson Good. 1983 and as you remember some time ago we interviewed uh, uh um who was it that we interviewed for this show a podcast we did uh, about an hbo film with mr F david frey uh, uh, i can't remember the name of the gentleman who was also who also helped he was uh, david fair white gentleman who is now deputy chief or acting chief at phmc and he may very well know um ducky because um, he talked to, and we interviewed him about, but we looked at the civil rights movement in terms of it from the HIV perspective and looking at gays and so on and so forth. And we looked at, uh, and we looked at this fight for civil rights and how that impact HIV AIDS and the fight for AIDS and so on and so forth. But in 1983, he helped this uh, Mr. Ducky helped to elect the first black mayor. But so too, David Fay also helped. But you see how by helping these guys and working for these and working for the, these people continue to, to fight for change. After Congressman, let's continue with, with, with the reading here. After Congressman Bill Green won the Democratic nomination for mayor over Bowser or Boozer, we decided to support him in the general election, but made it clear that we wanted something in return. The managing director's office. At the time, Good was the chairman of the Pennsylvania Public Utilities Commission, the first black to hold that office. He had made some big decisions on the first public stage, on this public stage, and had done a really good job with it. Because of Good's high profile, because of Good's high profile, he was a logical choice to become Philadelphia's first black mayor in the mind of many of us. We worked hard in 1983 to make it happen. But my political focus didn't just stay on the city. I started working on campaigns for state representatives, David P. Richardson and John White. Junior, when White decided to make a run for Philadelphia City Council, I helped him in that race too. I also helped Dr. C. Dolores Tucker with her campaign for Lieutenant Governor. 
Dr. Tucker was Pennsylvania's first black secretary of state and the first black to hold that office in the nation. She was appointed by Governor Milton Sharp and redefined that position, breaking down barriers for women and minorities and giving a voice to those who didn't traditionally have one. She initiated the Commonwealth's first affirmative action program, which led to an increase in minority leadership positions in other state offices. Although she was considered a threat by some in the Democratic Party, her political work, her political stock continued to rise. She was a member of the Democratic National Committee's executive and campaign committees and was a delegate to the party's national conventions. She was also the head of the National Democratic Black Caucus. I was also impressed with how she would work with both parties to gain the leverage that blacks needed to enhance their political clout. Some people call me a neutral politician, but I'm not. I am, however, a political activist. To me, it's about doing what is best for my people. Whether it's for a candidate or concerning an issue, I love people and I felt that the only way that we are going to survive is through politics and economics. From the late 1960s to the mid-1980s, I served on several election campaign staffs, including the presidential campaign of the late U.S. Senator Hubert Humphrey and Jimmy Carter, the mayoral campaigns of Cecil B. Moore, Thatcher Longstreet, Charles Boozer, Lou Hill, Bill Green and W. Wilson Good, Milton Sharp's gubernatorial run, C. Delores Tucker's run for Lieutenant Governor, Ed Rendell's run for District Attorney, Ed Rendell, he, he knew Ed Rendell, and the campaigns of several city council persons and state legislators. I can, I knew, uh, Ed Rendell I can, I can associate with. Now that person I know because, you know, I was born in the 1970s, late beginning of the 1980s. Now, let's continue with the book. He said, also, I was involved in helping Roxanne Jones becoming the first black female elected to the Senate, the state Senate in Pennsylvania, and the Reverend Bill Gray becoming one of the country's most powerful congressmen. I really became impressed during the 1980s with the sophistication of black and white voters, especially in connection with female candidates. Together, they elected Roxanne Jones as the council's of, of, as the Commonwealth's first black female state senator in 1984, and following her death, voters elected Shirley Kitchen to represent the third senatorial district. Now, for the first time, two African-American women represent senatorial districts in the Philadelphia area. That came about because then-state representative Leanna Washington succeeded Alison Swartz, who was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2005. Cheryl Parker succeeded Washington in the 200th Legislative District. They both point to prominent councilwoman Marianne Tasco as a special mentor for them in the political arena. Now, my relationship with Bill Gray began in 1981 at the time when my business struggles had laid my spirit low. It would take two years for me to get back on my entrepreneurial feet and Gray felt he needed to help me. I was working in his campaign, but I had done I had done that for a lot of people who didn't give me a hand when I needed it. 
so you can imagine how grateful I was when he extended his to me you know I feel the same way sometimes anyway moving right along Ray faced a strong challenge from activist T. Milton Street for his congressional seat Street John F. Street's brother had a strong grassroots organization probably one like we had here at the neoliberal corporation while gray was a minister i was more of a street person myself so i could handle milton on that level that left gray available to concentrate on other critical areas with his administrative assistant and chief of staff j wyatt mondesire or mondesire i've always liked milton and we're still friends to this day but on those days where we'd have to meet in the gutter i came right out and told him milton you're on the wrong side gray was good at talking to bankers and other influential people while both of us were able to dialogue with church officials like deacons and trustees i also was able to go into bars pool rooms and other places and approach people on the streets to get gray's message across that was my role with bill and he just let me do my thing i always gave advice to him and Jerry who was my boss and to Marion Tasco who was my assistant I've always kept those lines of communications open with both Marion and Jerry now another interesting experience that came out of my political involvement happened during the 1986 US Senate race Reverend Sullivan was close to Senate Ireland Specter Reverend Sullivan was close to Senator Ireland Specter who had been good to OIC financially but i was one of the campaign staff of then democratic congressman bob edgar i was on the campaign staff of then democratic congressman bob edgar when we arranged for a visit to zion baptist church from edgar reverend sullivan became very uneasy he didn't want specter to think that he was supporting edgar i assured him that we would remain neutral but because i knew that Edgar would continue OIC support. I also explained to Reverend Sullivan that he would he would be taken care of regardless. Don't worry, Reverend, I said. If Spectre wins, you're going to be all right. If Edgar wins, you're still going to be all right. He thanked me. So we had a men's day program at Zion that Sunday, and Edgar's campaign photographer, Edgar's campaign photographer took a picture of Reverend Sullivan, me, Edgar and Deacon Joseph Fisher, a longtime friend of mine whom I'll talk more about later in this book. But when the story and photo were painted in Edgar's political publication, Reverend Sullivan's picture was mysteriously missing. I had cropped him out, which was which was made easier by my insistence that he stand on that he stand on the end of the group instead of in the middle. He was grateful to me for that. Now, since 1996, I've served on the staff of, Cong of Congressman Robert or Bob Brady in various capacities, ranging from community and public relations to troubleshooting. I've been, I've known Bob for more than 25 years. And remember, when he was a city, a city clerk and city council parliamentarian, he once had the thankless job of removing two of the city's most prominent political activists, John and Milton Street from council chambers for disrupting the sessions. They were protesting the fact that the city wasn't giving minority vendors a shot at construction contracts for the gallery for the gallery mall. And of course you know the gallery here. You, you know I'm familiar with the gallery which has now been transformed in Center City Philadelphia. 
moving right along here. Now, no one was surprised when Brady was selected chair of the Philadelphia City Democratic Committee. Jerry Mondesire, Carol Ann Campbell, and I were three of his biggest boosters. While we were impressed with his loyalty to the party, to the party we were more impressed with his legacy of helping the black community. So when Congressman Tom Fogelieta, Tom, when Congressman Tom Foglieta decided to step down from his first congressional district seat to become ambassador to Italy, Jerry, Carol, and I took what we called a power talk. We decided to support Brady and structure a coalition of black support to push him over the hump in the first congressman in the first congressman district, which is predominantly black. Brady was running against state representative Andrew Karn, who could still keep his 9th, 197th legislative district seat even if he lost. Khan knew that the makeup of the district at the time was about 65% black, 30% white, and 5% other. We pushed the race issue aside and believed that we would pull enough white black and other votes to push Brady over the top, especially when people saw his ability to deliver to the district and his record of achievement. As we wrap up this chapter, some people, he writes, some people didn't like what Jerry and I were doing on Brady's behalf. On my phone, stopped ringing for a while. But after Bob, not only one, but one big, my phone began ringing off the hook again. It wasn't a question of race to me, but a question of who is going to do the most for our community. I was like Cecil B. Moore in, in that regard. He didn't believe that the black community should support someone simply because they are black. They had to deliver. He might be my color, but he's not my kind, he'd say. I felt the same way. The risk that we took was the best thing I've ever experienced while working in politics. It turned out that Jewel Williams later ran on a ticket with Brady and defeated Andrew Kahn for his 197th district seat. While Kahn did a great job during his tenure in office, Jewel has done a tremendous job in his own right and is reaching out to the community with aggressiveness. One thing that I've learned about Bob Brady through working with him is that he helps everyone, even those who don't live in his district. As for Jerry Mondesire, with whom I've been politically involved for the last 25 years, he's one of the most brilliant, honest, and loyal persons I've known. He's often misunderstood, but if Jerry is for you, he's for you. I'd take him into a foxhole with me anytime because I know he's got my back. The end of chapter three. And we will skip chapter four to begin the reading of chapter five, which we had done earlier in this podcast episode. But because we are completely out of time, we will table chapter five to tomorrow for the next episode of the Neoliberal Round Podcast. And of course, chapter five is powerful. Chapter five is amazing. Chapter five, the moment. Taking a Stand for Civil Rights by Ducky, the Risk Taker, by Donald Ducky Burtz, a 
I stole to Kendall Wilson. Narrated by Ronaldo McKenzie. I am Ronaldo McKenzie. This is the eve of Christmas. Sorry, the eve of New Year's 2023. This is December 31st, 2022. This is the Neoliberal Podcast. And we are happy to share in promoting and sh- promoting and providing this history of a great gentleman. And you can't miss these stories. You can't miss these people who we, overly, who we, we overlook. You might hear about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Cecil B. Moore. But what about Ducky, the risk taker? You know, when you visit him, you learn more about these other people's lives who are big time. But there's so much to be told as we think about the story of civil rights and the story of freedom and the story of America and the story of Philadelphia and Jersey and so on and so forth and the U.S. It's just quite powerful. Thank you for listening to the Nailer Boy Run podcast. Coming up next is a New Year's special. That's going to be about 15 minutes. Join us on the next episode, episode 12. Promises to be amazing, quite deep and quite inspirational. Happy New Year. Take care. Thank you.